This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In just minutes, I'm going to speak with Democratic presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, about the coronavirus pandemic and his bid to try to replace President Trump. As the World Health Organization issues a scary warning today, now saying that the United States has the potential to be the next epicenter of the pandemic. The numbers reflect the horrific situation. The death toll in the United States now a shocking 646, meaning in just the last 24 hours since I was on air last, more than 100 people, 146 more people have died from the coronavirus. I want to take just a second here to think about that so it's not just a number to you or to me. 646, each one of those numbers, someone's son or daughter, someone's mother or father, their brother or sister, whether young or old, there are oceans of pain and suffering surrounding each addition to this grim toll. A week ago, there were just over 6,000 confirmed cases. Now we've crossed the threshold of 50,000, and the calls for supplies from doctors and nurses on the front lines are getting even more dire The messages from the White House on forcing industry to manufacture these needed supplies continue to be somewhat contradictory and confusing. But today, the head of FEMA told CNN that his team is using the Defense Production Act for the first time to secure more testing kits. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ripped apart the response from the federal government this afternoon, arguing in a scathing news conference that he thinks it's inexplicable that the federal government has not yet helped his state get more ventilators. FEMA says we're sending 400 ventilators. Really? What am I going to, what am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only sent 400 ventilators. Governor Cuomo says cases in that state are doubling every three days. Doubling every three days. And the governor of New York is predicting that the peak of the crisis in his state could still be up to three weeks away. Meanwhile, from President Trump, more questions about his leadership. The president, of course, spent weeks belittling the threat of the virus and promising that everything was under control, which it obviously was not. Top health officials were, however, overjoyed last week when President Trump finally began acknowledging the gravity of the lethal pandemic. They are not as happy today because the president, encouraged by his economic advisors and people on Twitter, said he wants the nation, quote, opened up and raring to go by Easter. That's less than three weeks from today. And that's a date the top health officials do not think will be sufficient to control and contain the coronavirus. Democratic and Republican senators this afternoon urging President Trump to heed the advice of top health officials. Among those who do not support ripping off the Band-Aid and just telling everybody to go back to work anytime soon is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who said this just Friday. I don't think with any moral conscience you could say, Why don't we just let it rip and happen and let X percent of the people die? I don't understand that reasoning at all. Even one of the top Republicans in the House, Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, tweeted today, quote, there will be no normally functioning economy if our hospitals are overwhelmed and thousands of Americans of all ages, including our doctors and nurses, lay dying because we have failed to do what's necessary to stop the virus, unquote. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us at the White House. Caitlin, can you walk us through what the White House is thinking in terms of telling everybody to go back to work by Easter? 
Well, Jake, they had this meeting with the coronavirus task force on Sunday, and that was when the president made pretty clear he wants to lift these guidelines starting next week when they expire. Now, what that's going to look like is the question here, because the health experts have warned if you send too many people back to work or too many people start going to events, the number of cases in the U.S. is going to spike. So what they are trying to do right now is come up with a compromise to present to the president, one that they hope will reopen the economy, restart the economy, but also that can keep Americans safe and not get too many people sick by spiking the number here. So they're considering a phase potentially, maybe sending people who are younger than 40 back to work and then gradually returning people who are older than that back to work. They're also considering lifting the federal guidelines, but telling people to follow what their state officials are telling them. They're also talking about maybe restricting vulnerable people from still going out in society as much. Things like keeping nursing homes without visitors. Things of that nature are all on the table right now as they are trying to find this compromise for the president that we should note nothing has been set in stone. And, Jake, I do want to note they're also trying to figure out if they can get data on just how effective the measures over the last week have been. And maybe that could change the president's mind on this. And, Caitlin, uh, there's a lot of pushback to this, including from top health officials. We even saw some public pushback from Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, who who generally is very supportive of the president. Uh, Are there other allies of the president publicly expressing the concerns that top health and medical officials have? Yeah, it's not just Liz Cheney. It's also Lindsey Graham, Joni Ernst, Deb Fisher, all of these lawmakers who are urging the president, listen to the medical experts when you're making these decisions. Follow the CDC guidelines, things of that nature, instead of, you know, solely focusing on the advice of his economic advisors, which he's been doing so far. Though, Jake, we should note yesterday when I asked the president, are you going to follow the advice that the health experts give you next week when you're making a decision about easing these guidelines? He only said he's going to listen to them, but he said he's going to listen to other people, too, Jake. Caitlin Collins uh, at the White House. Thank you so much. Joining me now from his uh, new home studio in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, the former vice president of the United States, the current Democratic frontrunner for the presidential nomination, Joe Biden. Uh, Vice President Biden, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jake. So President Trump said today he would like to reopen the country by Easter. What's your response? He should stop talking. You start to listen to the medical experts. You talk about having an economic crisis. You want an economic crisis, let, watch this spike. Watch the number of dead go up. Watch the number of people who, in fact, connect with this virus. When are you going to be able to open the economy? Look, we all want the economy to open as rapidly as possible. The way to do that is let's take care of the medical side of this immediately. One of the things, he's not responsible for the coronavirus, but he's responsible for the delay in taking the actions that need to be taken as far back as January. And uh, I, I just, I, 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 I find it incredible. Listen to Dr. Fauci. He's been there since Reagan, all the way through. He worked with our administration. He's a serious, serious player. What is going on with this man? Uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, if you were president right now, there's a big debate right now about whether or not President Trump should be using the full weight and force of the Defense Production Act to basically compel American industries to manufacture all these medical supplies that are not yet available, uh, ventilators, masks, other uh, PPE, protective uh, gear uh, for doctors and nurses. If you were president, would you have enacted that? What would you be demanding of industry? I would have enacted a long time ago, Jake. I think it was three, two, three weeks ago I pointed out that the president should enact this. He, it should have been enacted months ago. This is a position where we know what's coming. 
All you got to do is look around the world. Every morning I'm on the phone for about an hour and a half with all the health experts on my committee, all the people working with me. They've been pointing out, I wish I had the graphs here with you. You, you see them, the spike in, in U.S. cases are going like this. It's now surpassed what it would be if we continue on this path, what happened in Italy. Look, this is ridiculous. Make the, make the change, like, like the governor said, Governor Cuomo, what is he going to do with several hundred or several thousand? He needs a great deal more. The whole country needs them. And let's move now. And industry's prepared to do it. What is he waiting for? He says he's a wartime president. Well, God, act like one. The, move the fast. Pre- the president had a um, town hall of some sort on his favorite channel earlier today. Uh, He mentioned you. Uh, I wanted to play that for you and get your reaction. Okay. I made a decision to uh, close off to China. That was weeks early. And honestly, I took a lot of heat. Uh, Sleepy Joe Biden said uh, it's xenophobic. I don't know if he knows what that means, but that's okay. Your response, sir? What a piece of work. (laughs) What a piece of work. You may recall early on, I said what we should be doing is sending our experts to China to look inside, not just take the word. We had a person in China that worked for the administration. I think he got fired or got brought home. What is he doing? What is he doing? He started off. You go back and look at all his comments. How about China's doing the right thing? China's doing the great thing. China's right along. China's this. China's that. I mean, come on. So this this is bizarre. So, you know, that it's not just uh, President Trump. There there are, you know, other people who are concerned about the economy. I assume you're concerned about the economy as well. I am very much concerned about the economy. And, and, you know, there are people who think, well, maybe there does need to be some sort of balance, some sort of reasonable balance, um, you know, regulated and and, uh, suggested and guided, I guess is the right word, by health officials. Uh, Dr. Burks, who you know. Uh, she uh, was in charge of the PEPFAR uh, program, now now helping to lead yep. the, the coronavirus task force. She said today that they want to be, quote, laser focused in dealing with the pandemic and are considering regional responses, uh, which could allow some to go back to work. Is that an approach that you would consider? I'd like to know what the scientific facts are. But, yes, it is possible. I don't want to slow the economy. I'd like everybody to be back to work. But let's be reasonable here. Let's look at what has happened in other countries. Look what happened when we have social distancing. As you know, you've said it 50 times on the air, Jake. You got to that curve. You got to flatten that curve. This is how it's going up. More and more and more and more people getting the coronavirus. More people dying. You got to flatten it. Now, there are places in the country where I can see it makes sense to be able to go back to work to deal with certain issues, to certain notions. But the idea that we are in a position where we're saying that by, what do you say, by Easter, he wants to have everybody going back to work? I mean, what's he talking about? He started off misrepresenting the problem. All the way back in January 17th, I wrote a piece for uh, U.S. News and World Report saying we've got a real problem. The president, we have coronavirus is real. We have to start acting now. It wasn't I wasn't unique in that. The intelligence community had already come forward and said he paid no attention. Again, the virus is not his fault, but the way in which he has been so slow in responding to what needs be done, what was already in place, is astonishing. You said one of your biggest concerns is all the misinformation out there, uh, which seemed to be aimed at President Trump in some ways. 
Um, do you think you literally think he should stop be talk, stop talking about the coronavirus? I think he should listen to the scientific experts. Listen to them. Listen to Dr. Fauci. He's not a scientist. Let the scientists speak. Let them lay out the facts as they know them. Let's lay out what's happened in other countries as we know it. This is not unique to the United States of America. He should be listening to the experts. That doesn't mean he shouldn't be talking to his economic. Every single day, Jake, I start off with an hour and a half briefing with the scientists on my, that I put together, the team of scientists. And then I have an hour and a half briefing from my economic people, the economists who are, are working with me. They both have to be considered. They both have to be looked at to see what we have to do. And look, the ways to deal with that, if he wants to make sure the economy doesn't collapse, well, let's make sure we get aid immediately now, now to all those people who are working people who are getting laid off, who are losing their time, who can't pay their rent, who are not able to keep their mortgage. These are people that need help immediately, immediately. Mr. Vice we, corporations are going to need help, too. But we have to set conditions upon which they're able to use that money for. Five hundred billion dollars in a blank check doesn't work. But five hundred billion dollars accountability, you pay it back. You cannot raise your salary of the CEOs. You cannot buy back stock. You have to be accountable. You have to keep people on the payroll. That's a totally different thing. That's another way to keep the economy up and going enough so that when this we through this, we are not losing a step to to make the kind of progress we have to make. Mr. Vice President, uh, if it's okay, I'm going to squeeze in a quick break. I want to still talk to you, continue our conversation, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, discussing the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Mr. Vice President, thanks for sticking with us. Um, To state the obvious, uh, older people are more adversely affected by the coronavirus than younger people. You're 77 years old. How have you been adjusting to the threat from this virus? Uh, what have you been doing to keep yourself safe? Well, I've been uh, following the recommendation of our governor, and I've been staying in place, not uh, not going out, not gathering at events. Uh, um, and the good news is that, thank God, uh, at least what I've been told by the docs, that I have no underlying condition that would complicate my circumstance. But, you know, look, uh, it's about keeping like, for example, I were told that we uh, shouldn't be around our young grandchildren. So my Bo's children, my deceased son's children live about a mile as the crow flies from us. And every day they walk over through the woods and through a neighborhood and they sit out in the backyard and we sit in the porch and I bribe them with ice cream. But uh, we talk about the day and we hang out and, you know, but we I'm not able to go down and hug him and kiss him, which I usually do. I'm just following the instructions that and anybody walks into the house from the Secret Service on, they're wearing masks and gloves. Uh, so we're just taking the precautions that we're told are the re- responsible things to do in terms of keeping our distance. Have you been uh, tested for the coronavirus? No, I, I have not been tested for the coronavirus. Uh, I've had, thank God, no symptoms that I'm aware of. Doesn't mean that that can't happen. But um, I have not been tested. I want to ask you about your presidential campaign and and your rival, Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders is is ramping up for the next round of primaries, (coughs) including uh, in the state of New York. Um, You know, the math is tough for him. Um, What do you think about him continuing his campaign, continuing to compete in primaries? 
Well, I think that's his decision. And, uh, you know, I've been asked that question, as you recall, about all the other folks who were in the primary before, all of whom have dropped out, I think with one exception of have formally endorsed me. That, that's a decision for them to make, not for me to make. You've said that you're going to pick a, a woman as your vice presidential nominee. You made that announcement during the uh, CNN debate. Um, have you had yes. conversations with any specific potential vice president as of, as of yet about the job? <clears throat> no, I have not. I'm putting together a team of uh, people to do background checks and, uh, and, a, and a committee that will oversee the process. And because realistically, uh, if the July 15 is still the time for the, uh, the nomination, uh, the, our convention, um, we're going to be in a position where you've got to get these underway and, and, the, and the background check started relatively soon, sometime in April. Um, given the corona- I have not, though. I, yeah. I have not talked to any individual. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, you're supposed to cough into your elbow. I don't know, sir. That's, I learned that actually covering your White House. That's, that you no, do- a- actually, actually, that's true. But fortunately, I'm alone in my home. But that's OK. All right. I, I agree. You're right. You should just it's Excuse just me. it's kind of old school to do it with your hand. Do it into the elbow. You're supposed to do it. Um, Thank uh, you. Let me let me ask you, um, given the, the coronavirus pandemic, do you think the Democratic National Committee should call off? Uh, the planned in-person Democratic convention this summer? No, I don't think so. I think we ought to be able to conduct our democratic processes as well as uh, deal with this issue. But look, that decision we made is a state of the nation at the moment. Um, But I don't think it should be called off, and I don't think we should call off any of the elections. Um, I think we just have to move forward. We may have to use different means and methods, uh, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, direct mail voting now going on, which may be one of the answers. But um, I think it depends on the circumstances that exist. But we can't, in the middle of the Civil War, we had uh, an election and the, and the virus in the, in the, in the 1900s. Uh, we had, uh, in the teens, we had the election. In the middle of World War II, we had an election. We can't let the democratic process be interrupted by the process of dealing with this virus. We can do both. Do you know anybody with the virus? Have you talked to anybody who's suffering from this? No, I haven't. Uh, I have. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. On the telephone, I have talked to people suffering from the virus or have loved ones who are suffering. My friend Amy Klobuchar's husband contracted the virus. I've been talking to her. There's others who I know of, but I have not in person spoken with anybody who has the virus. Lastly, sir, um, what's your message to the American people during this time? Because it's obviously very difficult. A lot of people are very scared. A lot of people are sick. A lot of people have loved ones who are sick. What, you want to be the next president of the United States. What's your message to all these frightened Americans? My message is we will overcome this. Look, the American people are incredible. I talked about early on in this campaign, unrelated to this virus, about the soul of America. Well, we're now seeing the soul of America. Look what's happening. Look what's happening all over the country. People are pulling together. They're helping one another. They're doing what needs to be done to prevent the spread. They're stepping up. They're making sacrifices. They're looking out for one another. Across the board, this is, I'm so darn proud to be an American. And it sounds like hyperbole, but it really is true. Look at what we've done. The American people have never, ever, ever, ever let their country down when they're given an opportunity to respond. And we just have to level with them. They're tough. They're smart. They can handle it. But give them the facts. The only thing that's going to make things works if we, in fact, don't give them the facts and then things turn out to be bad. Then who do they believe? 
What's there to believe? They can handle whatever comes their way. And my heart goes out to all those folks you just announced. As he said, I wrote it down and I got the brief this morning, the additional number of cases and the number of deaths. My God, having losing a child or a, a wife or a husband. I mean, it, it's I've been there. It's really, really, really tough. But they will get through it. And uh, I just I just uh, we just have to be supportive. We have to be supportive. And one of the things we can be supportive of is on the economic side to make sure that they're not going without the economic means that are necessary to keep their households moving. Vice President Biden, thank you so much for your time. Please stay healthy. Really appreciate it. You too, Jake. Thank you very much. Coming up next, New York's governor says his state is the new epicenter in the U.S. with cases doubling every three days. What is driving that? How long might it last? Stay with us. New York State is now the epicenter in the United States for the coronavirus with more than 25,000 confirmed cases. Governor Andrew Cuomo saying today that that number is doubling every three days. The question is, will New York be the epicenter for the world soon? CNN's Shimon Prokopes is live at New York's Jacob Javits Convention Center, which has now been converted into a, a makeshift hospital. And Shimon, Governor Cuomo compared the rise in cases to a bullet train heading right for New York. Did he explain why he thinks the rate might be rising there so fast? Yeah, and you're right, Jake. This is exactly how he described it. The apex is how he described it. It's rising uh, and it's coming faster, sooner than they had expected. And one of the things that they're seeing here uh, and what they think the reason why this has become the epicenter is because of just the density uh, in the city, the, all the global travel travelers, the people who travel uh, into this city from all across uh, the world, different countries. And then you also have, of course, the business community and the number of people who travel out outside of New York, across the world, and then come back here. So he believes, and based on what health officials are seeing, that in many ways this may have started here. You know, we keep hearing this, uh, that this may have been on the streets here in New York, in New York State, for much longer uh, than anyone had initially thought. And so it spread, and it has been spreading, and that's why we are seeing this rise and this continued rise in number of cases. And as you said, Jake, behind me is this makeshift hospital. They're getting things underway. uh, They're setting up all the gear, and then hopefully by next week they should have it up and running, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes in New York City, thanks so much. Joining me now is CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, let's start with Governor Cuomo's announcement that they're going to try to put two people on one ventilator in an experimental procedure. How is this going to work? Jake, this tells us how bad this has gotten, that they have that they are feeling like they need to do this. So a ventilator breathes, pushes air into a patient and you can rearrange the tubing basically so that the ventilator can breathe for two patients. It is not ideal. And that's because ventilators are fit to the patient. There are different settings and you want to put it on the best setting for that patient. Now you have to put it essentially on the on the best setting for either of those patients. So, you, so you'll try to group patients together who have similar needs. But, Jake, you know, we have talked so much about the heroism and the the incredible um, the smarts of these healthcare workers that you can that right now they're sharing advice. Here's how to do it. Use this setting. Use this tubing. Do this, not that. They are already preparing for how to do this. New York State's also starting a trial for an experimental drug that uses antibodies from patients who have recovered from the coronavirus and taking those antibodies and using them to treat 
people who have coronavirus but who are in serious condition. What do we know about this method? So this method has been in use for many years for many different illnesses, including Ebola. You might remember that some of the survivors in the U.S. gave their plasma to people who, which had their antibodies to patients. And to tell you the truth, it's unclear if it did anything. Those patients all survived, but it wasn't necessarily because of the antibodies. Basically, it's pretty simple. You take blood from someone who survived, so it contains the antibodies to the disease, and you prepare it, and then you give it to someone who is sick, and it is supposed to boost their immune system. It's supposed to tell their immune system, all right, this is how you fight this virus. It is not a sure thing. Again, with Ebola, did it work? We're we're still not sure, but it's generally considered to be a safe procedure. President Trump's been touting a a drug called chloroquine. Uh, We've talked to physicians who are worried uh, about patients out there self-medicating, just hearing the president say that and and going and getting it for themselves. Um, But what are you hearing? Right. So there already have been cases where people have self-medicated and it has not gone well. You can get very sick doing do-it-yourself chloroquine. DIY chloroquine, chloroquine is a bad idea. This is a drug that's administered by doctors for a reason. It is a generally safe drug, but French doctors have written how there's a narrow margin between a therapeutic dose of these drugs and a toxic dose. This drug has been associated with heart problems, with eye problems, if given a too high a dose. Not something you want to do yourself. Also, not something people should be hoarding, which is already happening. These drugs are used right now not just to treat COVID-19 patients, but to treat people with malaria and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. We should not be hoarding these drugs. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Coming up, there's a gender divide when it comes to dying from the coronavirus. Who is more vulnerable? A CNN investigation next. Stay with us. Both Senate Republicans and Democrats say they are very close to a deal on what could be America's largest economic stimulus package in history, worth almost $2 trillion. Some items up for negotiation, which Americans, which Americans qualify for $1,200 direct payments, uh, eligibility for $350 billion worth of small business loans, and much more. Let's go live to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, what's it going to take to bring this bill over the finish line? Well, it's going to take a sales job by the leadership on both sides. And that is exactly what is happening right now. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is talking to her caucus in a conference call, extriving to them about how the Senate bill is an improvement in her view over the last several days, believing it's gone further than what than the Republicans initially proposed, saying that they didn't get everything they want, according to sources on the call, but saying that it's essentially much better that the Democrats should accept as soon as tonight. Now, Senate Republicans just came out out of a briefing themselves with top officials with the Trump administration, including the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, the incoming White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, as well as the top White House legislative aide Eric Uland. And Republicans I spoke to afterwards uh, felt comfortable about the direction this is headed. And similarly, the Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer has explained to his caucus exactly what is in this deal. Now, that is important, Jake, because this has not gone through the normal legislative process. This has been cut behind closed doors among a small group of members. And this is such a significant bill, roughly $2 trillion. It's going to affect virtually all of the United States economy, affect distressed workers, people who have been displaced, industries all across the country, and it will have such a dramatic impact in all these states and districts that these lawmakers represented, represent 
and it could pass as soon as tonight, even though lawmakers have not seen the legislative text yet, because at the moment, Jake, that legislative text is being refined, is being looked at, is being looked at by the negotiators to determine whether or not it meets exactly what they ultimately agreed to. So there are still some steps in the legislative process, even as they're trying to push this for approval as soon as tonight, Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thank you so much. With livelihoods versus lives being debated at the highest levels, a former Goldman Sachs executive wants America to get back to work. Lloyd Blankfein tweeted, quote, crushing the economy, jobs and morale is also a health issue and beyond. Within a very few weeks, let those with a lower risk to the disease return to work, unquote. Let's bring in CNN's uh, business anchor, uh, Julia Chatterley. Julia, let's talk about this idea of younger, healthier people getting back to work. Is, is it picking up steam in the business world? And are business leaders talking about doing this just on their own or, or with some guidance from health officials? Well, Jake, the health officials are unanimous and we've been talking about this all day. Not right now. I'd argue that business get that and they listen. They don't want a crisis of confidence on their hands, too. But you get the sense as well that business has been making calls. Look at what Governor Como said today. He talked about this idea of a staggered opening up of the economy in line with health officials. He also said, look, we're not talking about 95 percent of people here. We're talking about the 5 percent. So is there a way perhaps of isolating, quarantining that 5 percent and letting the younger 95 percent of people get back to work? Again, I'll reiterate the message I don't think is right now. And even from what I hear, the White House gets that too. But, hey, I wouldn't put money on the next three to four weeks, Jake. And I think that's coming from pressure from the business community here too. The costs here, the job losses are mounting. Sure. No, I understand. Um, but I want to ask you also about the stimulus package that they're mm. working on uh, right now. They, they think they're close, Senate negotiators, Republicans, Democrats. It would provide relief to Americans stuck at home. There, there is growing concern that a federal plan uh, might not cover everyone. It might not cover gig workers, people who like are their own contractors, work for Uber. Uh, it might not cover those who are self-employed. Um, why not? This is a great point, And this is a burgeoning, growing part of the economy. Jake Forbes recently estimated this is around a third of all workers at some part of their lives at this moment in the United States. Are they an employee or aren't they? It's a grey area right now as far as legislation is concerned. And the risk here is that these guys fall through the cracks with this stimulus bill. It's a huge worry. With travel at a standstill, um, today Chevron said mm. that it's covering its spending by 20 percent, $4 billion. That's America's second biggest oil company. Um, is that a signal to, to other industries? Absolutely. It's a special case as well, remember, because all prices have tumbled. So they're already under a lot of pressure in terms of their earnings. But look, when we're throwing around numbers like a collapse in growth in the second quarter, recession, depression, no companies spending at this moment. They're hoarding and they're scared. In the 2008 financial crisis, I don't have to tell you, housing was a huge factor. Mm. Uh, today, this headline, new home sales down more than 4% in February. It is difficult to imagine anyone going out and looking at homes right now. Um, what could another bad headline in housing do to the economy? You know, it's just another kicker. At this moment, with interest rates so low, ordinarily, in ordinary times, people would be perhaps looking at refinancing their mortgage. At this moment, Jake, everyone's worried about making their mortgage payment and similar to rent as well. There needs to be action as far as outgoings for people on this. We've seen it a bit 
with a bit of forgiveness and you can talk to your banks about that on an individual basis. But as far as rent is concerned, there's real fears and that is rippling throughout the mortgage market and the financial market shake too, which is key. All right, CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the coronavirus gender divide, a CNN investigation on why the virus seems to be more deadly for one gender and not the other. Stay with us. Men appear to be significantly more likely to die from coronavirus than women. Data from Asia and Europe shows that over the age of 50, nearly twice as many men are dying as women. And in Italy, men account for about 70 percent of reported deaths. So why are men being hit so much harder than women? CNN's Max Foster analyzes the numbers for us. Countries around the world are struggling to contain a virus that's upended life as we know it. And across the globe, a surprising statistic has started to emerge. It appears more men may be dying. There's no good data about the share of tests that are given to men and women, respectively. But in Florida, nearly 60% of the confirmed coronavirus cases are male. And 70% of the deaths are male. Researchers have found this emerging pattern of men dying from the virus at higher rates in countries in both Europe and Asia. From Italy, we're seeing another concerning trend that the mortality in males seems to be twice in every age group of females. Comprehensive data about those who have got sick could help inform more effective responses to the crisis. But public health researchers say that when governments such as the United States either don't collect or don't publish their data, it's impossible for experts to gain an accurate sense of what's going on. People have the data. What, what we're not seeing happening, it seems, is a, is a collation, a collection of that data at state and national level with the speed which one might hope to see from the perspective of global health research. CNN found that of the six countries providing data split by sex, all showed men dying at higher rates. More than 70% of those who died in Italy are men. In France, more women have tested positive for the virus, but more men have succumbed to it. The same in South Korea. Across the countries for which we have data, spanning nearly a quarter of the world's population, we found that men were 50% more likely than women to die after being diagnosed with COVID-19. So why might men be more vulnerable? It's still too early to say, but one hypothesis is gaining traction. Across their life courses, men have greater risks of exposure to behaviours that will lead to adverse health outcomes in the long term. Researchers say that means smoking and drinking. Lifestyle factors, then, may be making men more susceptible. It's the type of insight that could inform who receives which treatment and when as the US ramps up its virus response. The most effective way of reducing the death toll will be knowing who's at most risk and needs to be protected first. So it could be that men smoke more. It could mean, uh, it could be that they have higher blood pressure or that women have stronger immune systems. We just don't know because the research isn't there. It depends on data, Jake. 
which just isn't publicly available currently in the United States. And it's worrying many in the health sector. All right, Max Foster, thank you so much. Appreciate that report. Uh, just minutes ago, President Trump reiterated that he wants the country back to some normalcy, saying it would be beautiful for churches to be packed on Easter. But what if that means more deaths? I'll talk to our Dr. Sanjay Gupta about that and much more. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At this hour, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States has surpassed 50,000. That's up from just 6,000 at this time last week. The death toll now continuing to rise, a terrifying 649 right now, jumping more than 100 deaths just in the last 24 hours. We have also just learned of another tragic death. A child in Los Angeles County has died, one of the first children to die in the U.S. from the coronavirus. And with this rapid acceleration in deaths, the World Health Organization says the U.S. could eclipse Europe and become the next epicenter of the coronavirus. Also right now, the Senate is close to a deal on a major stimulus package to help ease the economic pain of this pandemic. The Dow soaring up on that news as it closes in moments for the day. Meantime, more than 2.5 billion people worldwide are under some version of a partial or total lockdown or with restrictions due to this pandemic, according to CNN's calculation. That's nearly a third of the world's entire population. It includes about half of Americans, though... President Trump is making clear that he wants the United States to get back to work, at least in some form. This afternoon, the president said his goal is to reopen the country by Easter, April 12th. That's less than three weeks from now. Minutes ago, the president said it would be a beautiful time to have packed churches all over the country. This, of course, would be against the guidance of top health officials who are skeptical at the very least that the coronavirus will be contained and controlled by that time and that a rush back to work or to church pews would inevitably cause more deaths and devastation. CNN's Caitlin Collins takes a closer look now at the different options White House officials are considering to try to reopen the U.S. economy despite the warnings by health officials. I'd love to have it open by Easter. As he questions whether his stay-at-home guidelines went too far, President Trump now says he wants to reopen the nation within a matter of weeks. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. The 15-day guidelines the White House issued last week were meant to slow the spread of coronavirus. But they also shuttered businesses and put many Americans out of work. With an eye on the economy, Trump is now indicating he may ease them when they expire next week. It's been very painful for our country and very destabilizing for our country. And we have to go back to work. But public health experts say that may be too soon. Doctors have warned that the nation could see a massive spike in coronavirus cases if Americans return to crowded workplaces or events too quickly. Advice that Trump pushed back on today. I mean, I'm sure that we have doctors that would say, let's keep it closed for two years. OK, let's close it up for two years. Now, we got to get it open. Now the president's advisors are scrambling to find a compromise that keeps the country safe and restarts the economy, including looking at a phased system that's based on age or geographic location, though one official cautioned that nothing has been decided yet. 
the president's asked our team for recommendations about not how we do one or the other, but how we do both. Mm -hmm. The president suggested Americans can still exercise good health practices at work. We can socially distance ourselves and go to work. But sources say he's relying more on the advice of his economic advisors than his health care experts. And the economic advisors are arguing that the virtual shutdown is ruining the economy. You can destroy a country this way by closing it down. The president hasn't committed to following the advice from his team of doctors when it comes to making a decision on the guidelines. Today, he once again compared the number of deaths from the flu to that of the coronavirus, even though his own experts have said the coronavirus is far deadlier. But we've never closed down the country for the flu. Trump insisted his relationship with Dr. Tony Fauci is on solid ground today as he was absent from the Fox News town hall. After a Republican lawmaker suggested last week that the administration was overreacting to the coronavirus and that people are still allowed to drive cars despite car accident deaths, Fauci called that a false equivalency. I don't think with any moral conscience you could say, why don't we just let it rip and happen and let X percent of the people die? I don't understand that reasoning at all. As another one of the doctors on his task force highlighted the high transmission rates of coronavirus in New York, the president interjected with a shot at the state's governor. Part of it is density. Part of it is the spread that may have happened on metal surfaces like in the subway and people that were in the subway. Part of it may be a large number of people came back after Christmas from Asia. Do you blame the governor for that? And part of it could be the Europeans who have come back subsequently. You see there, Dr. Burks did not answer the president's question. Jake, we should also note that the president and the vice president held an investor call today with CEOs talking about the markets, talking about the possibility of them easing these federal guidelines that they issued last week. We're likely to hear more about this because they just announced there is going to be a coronavirus task force briefing here in the next hour as well, Jake. Joining me now, thank you, Caitlin, appreciate it. Joining me now is CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, so I need to get your reaction. Just moments ago, President Trump Trump spoke about his desire to ease restrictions uh, by Easter. I I want you to listen to what he said. Easter is a very special day for me. And I see it's sort of in that timeline that I'm thinking about. And I say, wouldn't it be great to have all of the churches full? You know, the churches aren't allowed essentially to have much of a congregation there. And most of them I watched on Sunday online. And he was terrific, by the way. But online is never going to be like being there. So I think Easter Sunday and you'll have packed churches all over our country. I think it would be a beautiful time. Sanjay, I don't know of any health officials who think uh, that we can start going back to normal uh, within the next three weeks or even within the next couple months. President Trump wants packed churches on April 12th. That's less than three weeks from today. What would that mean? Well, you know, I, I, I think the concern is, and what you're hearing from public health officials, I'm hearing the same thing, Jake, is that would put us behind again. You know, we've been doing, we'll have been doing the social distancing uh, for about a month at that point, uh, maybe not even quite. If you look at places around the world where they've gone through this curve now and had some success, thankfully, China, South Korea, places like that, 
it was an eight to 12 week sort of eight to 10 weeks at least proposition. So um, it, it's not like one of those things you can do sort of incrementally. As we've talked about, if you're gonna do this, you do it early, you do it consistently, you do it honestly, diligently, because if you give up too early, you kind of erase the gains that you've made. And you know, look, we're, we're seeing some of the impact of, of waiting as long as we have now in, in, uh, in, in New York, for example, Washington, California, and other places. Right, and it's starting to spike not just in New York, but in other in other states, Pennsylvania among them. Uh, what about uh, this push to reopen the economy? Are there any viable options to try to bring back some sort of economic activity that will not lead to a health catastrophe? Well, it's interesting because I, I think there's there's some nuance here which may be important. People they, they say, well, younger people. Uh, they should be allowed to work. But as we've talked about, um, unfortunately, there is a concern about asymptomatic spread. So younger people are, are going out back to work maybe. They come back home. They might get their, their uh, young children or elderly parents, uh, grandparents, whoever, ill. I mean, that, that is the real concern. That, that part of the concern hasn't changed. And we also know as much as we define this illness by those who have lived and those who have died, Jake, People can get sick. I mean, 20% of the people in the hospital right now are between the ages of 20 and 44. People should remember that, 20 to 44. That's, that's young, and 20% of the, uh, make up 20% of the hospitalizations. One thing that's interesting, Jake, is the idea that someone who has recovered from this infection, they get, they get confirmed to have uh, the coronavirus, they then recover. Could they then be people who, who could be uh, released into the workforce more quickly? Uh, as you know, Dr. Fauci's talked about this as well. They should be protected, immunized to some extent against the coronavirus. So that might be a better way to sort of think about who goes back to work rather than this arbitrary, you know, older versus younger because, uh, because of everything I said about the younger folks. There's this false comparison that people keep making, uh, President Trump among, uh, among the people, who keep making comparing uh, the coronavirus either to the flu uh, or to car accidents. Um, take a listen to what he said today. We never turn the country off. We lose much more than that to automobile accidents. We didn't call up the automobile companies and say, stop making cars. We don't want any cars anymore. We have to get back to work. Now, I, I would observe that what the U.S. government has done with automobiles is force them to put in seatbelts, force them to put in airbags, uh, right. impose uh, speed limits, right. put cops on the road. Put, I mean, there, there are lots of steps. Um, but, but let's start with the flu comparison. He said uh, we, we don't shut down because of the flu. Uh, Fauci's also already said both of these are false impressions. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, this is one of the first conversations I, I had with President Trump about this whole topic was uh, to remind you know, people that this was more lethal than the flu. I mean, the flu is a big deal. I mean, people don't pay attention to it. They should. That's a fair point. I mean, in, in 2017, 2018, around 60,000 people died of the flu in this country alone. So it's a big deal. And, you know, uh, there's been 20 some thousand deaths already this year. This is 10 to 20 times more lethal, Jake. 10 to 20 times. There's no vaccine for this. There's no buffer against this. It's a novel virus. Our body's immune systems have never seen it. That's why it's such a big deal. So, yes, they're both pathogens. They're both viruses, but they, they share very little in common besides that. Yeah, I mean, and, and the influenza of 1918 killed almost 700,000 Americans. Right. I mean, people could have compared that to the normal flu, too. I, this uh, today marks a, a week ago since you and I uh, were talking about people that we saw uh, not abiding by um, social distancing. Uh, last Tuesday, the U.S. had 6,000 cases. Yep. Now we're at more than 50,000. 
Um, you were telling us last Tuesday when we talked and you were expressing concern that the number of cases was going to go up exponentially. Did you expect it to go up this much? Um, you know, as, around this much, Jake. I mean, you know, we started to see a doubling ratio of this every two to three days. As you know, you and I have been emailing about this in off hours, constantly exchanging these numbers. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are going up and we're also getting a look at things uh, sort of behind the curve. So even these numbers right now, they reflect people who were exposed maybe up to two weeks ago. So, in fact, the real number in this country uh, is, is two weeks behind. And if this has been doubling every few days, you can start to do the math. It's a much larger number is, is the point. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, New York, we talk a lot about. But Michigan, you know, a week ago, 65 cases, now 1,300 cases. Louisiana, uh, just, uh, just around a couple cases, now 1,300 cases. Florida and Georgia are growing at 20% a day. I mean, that's just all in the last week. So when we were talking about social distancing and sharing our concerns, you know, that 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 was part of it. Uh, you know, if you're going to do these social distancing measures, you got to be you know, they got to be pretty, pretty stringent and you have to do them early. Um, I think that's why you and I, especially in those Florida scenes on the beaches in Florida, we were so concerned. Florida now, again, going up 20 percent a day in terms of patients who, who are infected that some of this is is addressable by us some of this is we can we can make an impact just because of our own individual behavior and i think that's why we were both so concerned last tuesday because it didn't seem like that was happening then although it does seem like a lot of people in places like san francisco uh, and new york city and other places uh, have uh, really gotten the message and really are uh, taking it very seriously and engaging staying at home and, and doing social distancing sanjay gupta Always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a scientist at the center of the search for a coronavirus vaccine, what she makes of the potential treatments under testing now, plus a frightening warning from one expert who says healthcare workers are essentially being asked to jump off a cliff without the appropriate protective equipment. Stay with us. Welcome back. A staggering statistic today from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, his state now has more than 25,000 coronavirus cases, almost 10 times more any other state, with cases doubling every three days in New York State. As CNN's Erica Hill reports for us now, the dire situation in the Empire State comes as other states are taking new measures to try to contain their spread. A plea from the epicenter of this crisis to focus. We are just a test case, and that's how the nation should look at it. Look at us today. Where we are today, you will be in three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. We are your future. Let's learn how to act as one nation. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo today announcing cases in his state are doubling about every three days. He's calling on the federal government to prioritize how and where it deploys crucial equipment and supplies, starting with his state. New York has 25,000 cases. It has 10 times the problem that California has, 10 times the problem that Washington state has. How can we be in a situation where you can have New Yorkers possibly dying because they can't get a ventilator, but a federal agency saying, I'm going to leave the ventilators in the stockpile? Of the 30,000 ventilators Governor Cuomo says New York needs, the federal government has now pledged 4,400 will ship to the state by Wednesday. This is buying us some time, but we are going to need more. When you need a ventilator, you need it immediately. The need for critical supplies escalating as hospitals and health care workers are stretched to the brink. 
were basically being asked to jump off a cliff, uh, you know, without the appropriate protective equipment. Um, and so that's that's really hard. It's it's I think that's probably what's more stressful than the actual hard work of it itself. Ford, 3M and GE Healthcare announcing a new partnership to meet that need. GE even putting out a call for more manufacturing workers. But regular production is still weeks away. By the middle of May, uh, we could be making uh, hundreds of thousands of these uh, ventilators. Millions of Americans are facing their own deadlines for rent and mortgage payments. Morgan Stanley is now predicting jobless claims for the past week could top 3.4 million, roughly five times the highest number on record. By Wednesday, more than half of all Americans will be under orders to stay home. And more students are learning they won't return to a classroom this school year. Business leaders are pushing for younger, healthy workers to return to the office as the president pushes to restart the economy by Easter. I keep thinking to myself, when the CEO is ready to take the subway to work or a bus to work and then operate the elevator in their company, I'm going to get some sense that they think it's safe enough to end social distancing, and I don't think we're there yet. Do we let people die, or do we, do we kill all the businesses and jobs? We've, it's a twin battle that we've got to be fighting on both at the exact same time, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Americans at every level adjusting to the changes in real time with no deadline in sight. And Jake, a sobering headline out of California just a short time ago where we learned that the first uh, was reported the first known death of a person under 18, the first child. Uh, we learned that as reported with four different deaths out of Los Angeles County. The health director there for L.A. County saying this is, quote, a devastating reminder that COVID-19 infects people of all ages, Jake. COVID-19 infects people of all ages. Erica Hill, thank you so much uh, for that reminder, for that report. Uh, joining me now, Deborah Fuller. She's a microbiologist at the University of Washington State and Dr. Luciana Borio, an infectious disease uh, specialist. Dr. Borio, let me start with you. Today, uh, New York Governor Cuomo said that they're trying an experimental procedure where they're going to put two patients on one ventilator because the shortage uh, of ventilators is so dire. What's your reaction to that? That's right. The situation is very dire, and I think it's important for the federal government to really heed his request to provide him with the supplies he needs at this moment. It's very crucial because uh, we want to limit fatalities. The idea of splitting a ventilator with two patients um, has been tested in Spain and Italy. It's a very difficult thing to do because every patient is unique and the ventilator settings are tailored to the unique patient's needs. Patients um, will get better or worse at different times. It's very difficult to match. It may be all we can do right now at this moment, but it's critical that we focus on augmenting the supply of ventilators to where it's needed most. Uh, Deborah, uh, certainly not be helpful for the sickest of patients. Uh, Deborah, New York State uh, also starting a trial for a coronavirus treatment um, that would use antibodies from people who had coronavirus and recovered to help those who are, are seriously ill with the coronavirus. What can you tell us about this method and how it works? Yeah, this is a, a common method known as uh, passive immunization, and it really dates back to the late uh, 1890s when it first got started before uh, we had vaccines, before we had antibiotics for a lot of infectious diseases. Uh, the concept is really that you take an individual who uh, has recovered from the infection and you uh, collect their blood, 
And then you test to see whether or not they have antibodies that are able to neutralize the virus. And from those, uh, from those folks, you end up identifying those who have the strongest neutralizing antibody against the virus. And then you're going to be able to use their antisera to uh, infuse into uh, a patient who is uh, suffering from the infection in the hopes that their antibody is going to be able to help combat uh, the virus. And, and Deborah, your lab in Seattle uh, has been looking for a vaccine for the coronavirus. How, how, that, how might that differ from what New York is doing? Yeah, so passive immunization is very different from uh, vaccination, which is more called, uh, is referred to more as active immunization. When you have passive immunization, meaning you're just transferring antisera from one individual to another, that isn't long-term immunity. That's uh, a temporary fix to try to help that person control uh, their ongoing infection. With vaccination, what we're trying to do is induce an immune response that has long-term memory and provide you with immunity uh, against uh, not only uh, uh, you know an imminent infection, but uh, an infection from the virus in the future. And so vaccines are generally used uh, more often in individuals who are not infected yet to protect the population. And you know, and overall vaccines really are probably the one medical intervention of, of all the other types that are being tested that has the greatest hope for eventually uh, uh, slapping down this pandemic. And Dr. Borio, President Trump's been touting a combination of two drugs uh, that could help treat the, the coronavirus. One's an anti-malaria drug, uh, hydroxychloroquine. The other is an antibiotic called azithromycin. Um, they're not right now FDA approved for coronavirus. Do you think ultimately they might be? Are they safe for doctors to prescribe? What do you think of this? That's right. So in times like this, it's really understandable that uh, physicians and patients uh, look for potential cures at the soonest possible time point. And what I think it's really important to realize is that uh, the fastest way to identify cures is to properly conduct clinical studies. That's the fastest way and the most efficient way. I think it can be really dangerous to broadly distribute an antiviral therapy that uh, has, uh, based on very, very limited data, uh, very disappointing results, actually, when I read the study. And uh, in the meantime, there are about 40 sites across the U.S. right now conducting a randomized controlled clinical studies with the help from the NIH. They're testing an antiviral drug right now, and results should become available hopefully within two to three weeks. There are other studies as well being conducted that are randomized in New York. Uh, there's a company that is testing an immunomodulatory therapy. So I think we can't lose sight of the desire to have cures from the importance of conducting the right trials so we can actually get the cures at the soonest possible time frame. So everybody listening out there, don't, don't decide that you're going to get this medicine. Consult with doc, uh, the doctors, your doctor, Dr. Luciana uh, Borio and Deborah Fuller. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for your time. Coming up, $2 trillion, possibly some money going into your pockets. Where the negotiations over the Senate stimulus package stand right now, that's next. Welcome back. Both Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats say they are on the verge of agreeing on the biggest economic stimulus plan Congress has ever considered, $2 trillion. But despite this crisis, an aide to Speaker Nancy Pelosi tells CNN that President Trump and the Speaker have not spoken in more than five months. Specifics in this $2 trillion package are still the moving target, but items floated include $250 billion in payments to Americans, more than $10 billion for vaccine development, and $5 billion for funding for FEMA. 
CNN's Manu Rajas on Capitol Hill. And Manu, as you noted on Twitter just a, a couple of minutes ago, it's been four and a half hours since uh, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer said uh, they had this deal on the two yard line. Senate Republicans say the deal has to be done today. Are they going to get across? into the end zone? Yeah, it depends on what two-yard line uh, you're talking about, which team is playing, I guess. But actually, what we're talking about here is really the art of legislation or sausage-making on Capitol Hill. What's happening is that the two sides have agreed conceptually on some of the outstanding issues. Now they're going back and forth about drafting the actual legislative language to implement their agreements. And then when one side shows the legislative language, the other side may want some changes. They go back and forth for some time. And given the significance and sweep of this proposal, roughly $2 trillion affecting so many industries, companies, individuals, people hurt by this economic crisis, so much at stake and so many people impacted. It is taking some time to get all of the pieces in line and getting all the players to sign off. And this is also only being conducted, the negotiations between a handful of people, the top leaders of Congress, top administration officials led by Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. So they're going back and forth and each of these leaders have to brief their own caucuses about what is in this bill to ensure that all of them could sign off because if they want to get this bill done tonight, which is still the goal, they need everybody to agree to quickly pass this bill because if one of them objects, then it could delay the process even further. So a lot needs to still happen to get to that final vote, but there's optimism that this deal can be reached and that people could be getting paychecks as high as $1,200 over a certain income threshold in just a matter of days once they get this bill through the finish line here. Jake. All right, Manu Raja, thank you so much. Uh, New York's Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier today slammed President Trump for not forcing companies to manufacture critically needed ventilators and hospital masks under the Defense Production Act. Where are the ventilators? Where are the gowns? Where's the PPEs? Where are the masks? Where are they? Where are they if they're doing it? When we went to war, we didn't say, uh, any company out there want to build a battleship? Who wants to build a battleship? That's not how you did it. The president said it's a war. It is a war. Well, then act like it's a war. And it's not anti-business. President Trump has insisted that American corporations are stepping up voluntarily and that he does not want to nationalize American industry. CNN senior Washington correspondent Jeff Zeleny uh, joins me now. And uh, Jeff, would more supplies be produced and available if the president actually enforced the, the Defense Production Act and, and compelled American companies to be making these goods? Well, Jake, almost certainly the answer is yes. And as you said, companies across the spectrum have raised their hands and they are trying to do what they can to help in this pandemic. But the thing that's lacking is coordination from these companies. And we're talking to state officials. That's what they say is missing here, is a certain a coordination about what companies are supposed to be doing. And the supply chain is the most important point of all. Now, when Harry Truman signed this uh, law in 1950 during the uh, Korean War, the point of it was in the time of a crisis or an emergency is to nationalize for a time of business, to have the government instruct businesses what to do, how to help, and how the supply line goes. Well, one thing we're told the president has been, you know, sending out mixed signals for the last week or so. He says he's uh, invoked it, he signed it, but he's not put it into order because it's not necessary. But Jake, one thing that is missing is, is the supply chain sending things where they need to go. Now, some administration officials say that the Chamber of Commerce and others are saying it's not necessary. They don't want to nationalize these businesses. But what is lacking here is the priority for these states. And that is what the open question is, is it 
know, beyond the point of even getting those things into the pipeline now, as Governor Cuomo was saying earlier today. And Jeff, it's confusing because President Trump says he doesn't need to do it. Uh, but then the president's own FEMA administrator contradicted him and said that they were using it. Jake, that was extraordinary. Within about three minutes time this morning, the president sent out a message on social media, on Twitter, saying he did not need to um, invoke this act because companies were uh, working. And then FEMA, right here on CNN, the director of a FEMA, a Peter Gaynor, uh, said that he did plan to do that for some things, for some medical uh, testing kits and using some of the DPA language for masks. So still at the end of the day here, Jake, confusion over what the president is doing with this. I suspect once again today, It'll be a central question at his White House briefing at 5.30 here in Washington. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Uh, coming up, the global toll. The situation so dire in one nation, an ice rink has been turned into a makeshift morgue. We're going to check in with CNN international reporters around the world. Stay with us. In our world lead today, Russian President Vladimir Putin in a protective suit while visiting a hospital outside Moscow today. Russia reported reporting a questionably low number of cases of coronavirus, fewer than 500 in all of Russia, if you believe Putin's government. In China, parts of the Great Wall being opened back up for tourists. But in Italy, 743 deaths reported in just 24 hours. In Spain, they've turned an ice rink into a makeshift morgue. And in an unprecedented move, the Olympics, of course, are being postponed for the first time ever. We have reporters uh, around the globe joining us now from China, Italy, and Spain. Let's start with CNN's David Culver joining me now from Shanghai. David, uh, the Chinese government is making it seem as though things are getting better. They're starting to lift travel restrictions. What's your take on the reality of the situation there? You and I, Jake, have talked about questioning the numbers here, and I think a lot of folks have been a, a bit concerned as to their reliability, given in recent days we've seen fewer and fewer cases reported. In some cases, no new cases reported within mainland China, which seems tough to believe. So what I've always looked for, and a lot of folks here have kind of followed this lead, is the action that would be taken so as to represent that. And we're starting to see, certainly within the epicenter of all of this, Hubei province, that action taking place within just a few hours. What do I mean by that? They're lifting some of the very strict lockdown restrictions that have been in place for now more than two months. Now, within Wuhan, Hubei's capital, those restrictions are still going to be in place. So they're not easing things quite as quickly. They're holding on to them for another two weeks or so. But essentially what they're going to be allowing is folks to have a little bit more flexibility to move around, to go out of their apartments and, and complexes in some cases, and to perhaps even use public transportation. That may come online within the next few days or so. Uh, that, that's a significant move. Um, however, we're talking to people who are within Wuhan just a few hours ago, I was on the phone with uh, three residents who we've been in touch with from the start. They say, look, when you open the floodgates, yeah, it sounds great, but there's still a lot of hesitation and there's a lot of concern. So it's not like you're going to see people rushing out into the streets. And the other thing is, Jake, they're going to be tracking people still. They have these QR codes and they're going to want to know if you're potentially exposed and they keep tabs on all of us. All right, David, thank you so much. Uh, Barbie Nadeau joins me now uh, from Rome. And Barbie, the U.S. Is, is looking to Italy, sadly, as a window into the possible future for the U.S. Since Italy, uh, the, the rate of the spread here in the U.S. seems to be about 10 days behind uh, where Italy is. Uh, the daily death toll in Italy was going down at one point, but now it's back up. 
That's right. You know, we saw a spike, the second highest spike since this ordeal started. Some of that could be because people aren't reporting in a timely measure. These health systems are overwhelmed. But we are seeing a trend towards fewer positive cases. We're seeing so many people recover and get out of the hospital. And that is such a positive thing. We've seen greater compliance on these on the lockdown. And the government has just made that even more compulsory because they've upped the fine from 400 euro to 3,000 euro for anyone who doesn't think uh, they need to follow the rules. And that's all going to work towards getting us out of this mess. All right, Barbie, stay safe. CNN's Scott McLean joins me now from an outside an ice rink in Madrid, Spain, that was turned into a makeshift morgue. Scott, Spain now has uh, the third largest number of deaths only after China and Italy. Um, What's it like on the ground there? Hey, Jake, it's pretty quiet here as Spaniards are obviously still under order to stay inside of their homes. But that silence was interrupted about an hour and a half ago when they came out on their balconies for the nightly round of applause for healthcare workers. In fact, the people working here even came out in full hazmat suits to join in. This ice rink is being used as a morgue because the state-run funeral services are no longer picking up the bodies of coronavirus patients who have died because they say they don't have the proper protective equipment. And so the military is now stepping in to do that job. More than one in eight of all of the coronavirus cases confirmed in this country are that of healthcare workers. And perhaps we should not be surprised. Hospitals are overcrowded and under-resourced. In fact, the Madrid Nursing Union is sending its membership a how-to, an instructional video on how to make a waterproof gown out of garbage bags because there simply aren't enough. They're also reusing one-use masks. There also are not enough ventilators. I spoke to a doctor just yesterday who said that he is having to tell families that their loved one will have to die because the ventilator is needed for someone younger who is more likely to live longer. And these are people who would likely survive if they had a ventilator and a proper ICU, Jake. That's a grim story. Scott McLean in Madrid, Spain. Stay safe, my friend. Coming up next, pregnant during a pandemic, the new restrictions for women giving birth amid this deadly pandemic. Stay with us. Welcome back. We wanted to note something else that President Trump said today on his favorite channel in which he seemed to suggest that how nicely the nation's governors treat him will have an impact on how much he will agree to help that governor's state. It's a two-way street. They have to treat us well also. They can't say, oh, gee, we should get this, we should get that. We're doing a great job, like in New York, where we're building, as I said, four hospitals, four medical... We're literally building hospitals and medical centers. Just remember when the president suggests that how nice and deferential a governor is to him impacts how much he is willing to help that person's state. These are decisions that will have impact on real people, life and death impact. And there's a harsh new reality for pregnant women these days who are understandably anxious about giving birth during the coronavirus pandemic in New York, the U.S. epicenter of the virus, which continues to grow. There, two of the city's leading hospitals are now banning spouses and partners and other family members, even the birthing coaches called doulas, banning them from the delivery room. Joining me now, Jesse Porneris, a doula in New York City, here to tell us about the fears and concerns of pregnant women uh, during this time. Uh, Jesse, thanks for joining us. What are you hearing from expecting mothers? I mean, everyone is just kind of devastated right now. Um, The world looks very different today than it did even just two weeks ago. 
when the expectations were already beginning to shift, hospitals had begun to ban um, doulas and additional support people. And now um, in the last 48 hours, New York Presbyterian and Mount Sinai hospitals have banned spouses, partners, fathers, wives, um, mothers, and, and people are really scared and devastated. What are you telling your clients uh, in order to try to assuage their, their understandable concern and, and fears? I mean, right now we are making plans and making contingency plans. Some of my clients are planning on leaving the city altogether. Some are going um, as far as Indiana or Rhode Island to um, seek medical services elsewhere where they know their partners will be able to be included. Um, Some people are choosing to do home birth now, and many of my clients are just hunkering down. We are planning on uh, setting them up with computers and iPads and um, other uh, devices that can allow them to FaceTime me and their partner throughout the laboring process so that they do have at least some semblance of continuous support like they would if we were there. And explain why that support is needed. What are the risks uh, of a woman delivering a baby without her, her partner, her spouse, any sort of support system? Sure. I mean, just having continuous support, it's been shown that um, it reduces the likelihood of having an unplanned cesarean section. It reduces other complications associated with the laboring process. But more importantly, it's someone to bear witness, to be part of the process and to help hold um, medical staff accountable and to make sure that the laboring person's voice can be heard and is projected loudly and that they get the help that they need when they need it in a timely manner. Now, um, hospitals obviously are not doing this to be mean. They, they say that they're putting into place these regulations in order to protect moms and newborns from contracting uh, the coronavirus. Um, What do you say to that? I mean, if a mom's partner already has corona and they're coming in together, if they live together, that mom will likely have COVID um, and their baby will likely be exposed already. Uh, it, It is not common sense to um, separate partners uh, from their laboring person because it's, um, it is not going to prevent the spread of COVID uh, between those moms and those babies. Um, and in fact, it can only increase the risks of um, someone laboring alone and unseen for hours, um, which is my greatest fear. Am I right that this was prompted by the fact that one pregnant woman went in and her her husband had coronavirus and he went into and didn't tell anybody. Isn't that what triggered this? Yeah, from from my understanding, that is what triggered this. And of course, I'm not uh, in the hospitals making these uh, policy decisions. So I can't say exactly um, what the intent was behind it. But from from what I hear, that is the case. It was a knee-jerk reaction. I think it was a reaction without considering the long-term implications of um, this policy and all of the people that it impacts. Yeah, no, a horrible uh, to, to, to be scared, a scared mother about to deliver, and then you feel completely alone and isolated. Some doctors in hospitals have told patients that uh, there could be virtual visits from loved ones uh, or doulas via FaceTime. Um, yes. What do you think about that? I mean, it, it is a Band-Aid. Um, there is nothing that can replace having some 
person in the room with a laboring person 100% of the time. Um, Someone that can react quickly if there is an emergency or just someone to give them a hug and share space and love when they begin to feel um, out of sorts and when they no longer uh, feel like they are being uh, cared for. All right, Jesse Porneris, thank you so much for your time, for your advocacy. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news, some sad breaking news. We're learning now that the Tony Award-winning playwright Terrence McNally has died due to complications from coronavirus. He was 81 years old. He was a lung cancer survivor. He lived with chronic inflammatory lung disease. He will be remembered for his award-winning plays and musicals such as Ragtime and Kiss of the Spider Woman, among many, many others. We're standing by now for the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing scheduled for the next hour. We're not sure who will be participating in that briefing. We're going to bring that to you live ahead. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.